My conversation today is with professor of religious studies at Arizona State University, Freemason and author, Nathan Schick. Nathan has just released his debut offering with Tria Prima Press, entitled The Grand Communication, Freemasonry's Alchemical Quest for Divine Communion. In it, he takes the reader on a deep dive of Masonic history, lore, and legend, showcasing his abilities as a researcher. He examines esoteric topics from the perspective of historical and religious syncretism, while remaining satisfyingly erudite. I sat down with Nathan to discuss his background in religious studies and Freemasonry, his new book, his thoughts on the purpose and meaning of the craft, and more. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. you're on the scene. But for people that are listening to this podcast, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and and yourself? Because um, this is the first time you and I are actually meeting too. Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the Arkham podcast. I've uh, been following your uh, podcast and work for a while. A lot of great uh, presentations and guest interviews. And uh, so I'm really glad to be able to have a, a talk with you tonight a little bit about my own work and my background and how I've gotten involved with some of the writing and presentations of some of these different things. Um, I teach uh, religious studies at Arizona State University in the School of History, Philosophy, and Religious Studies, and I uh, have taught there for a little over 10 years, and I teach a wide range of courses. I teach something like uh, 12 different uh, courses in our catalog. Uh, and ranging, you know, the freshman, sophomore, junior level kind of courses. So um, students who have uh, a little bit of background information about some of the things that I talk about in the book, but not necessarily a lot of their sort of basic uh, knowledge building at that stage of their uh, of their academic careers. And I've also um, been a Freemason since uh, 2017. Uh, I'm currently the senior warden at my home lodge, and uh, I here in Arizona, we have a uh, program that is master lecturers for people who can perform all three of the Blue Lodge lectures from memory, and then the master ritualist awards, which are for people who can do um, basically all the degree uh, parts for the Blue Lodge uh, for uh, here in Arizona, our ritual, and so uh, last year, I became a master ritualist, and so I have been working on the Blue Lodge ritual, uh, and as a result of working on that for quite a while, I've become pretty familiar with the symbols and uh, some of the history as I explored, uh, as I worked on the ritual in tandem. Here in Arizona, we also have a reading list that you're given, and I started working through our reading list and having a common interest from my academic career. Uh, I could, you know, sort of see some commonalities and trends that I wanted to weave together and talk about that. I didn't feel like we're often being talked about in some of the treatments of the history of early speculative Freemasonry. And so that's kind of in part where my uh, book materials began uh, coming together. I started doing a series of presentations for 
my home lodge and then for other lodges and uh, use some of those materials, some of the feedback I got from those uh, presentations uh, to put together the uh, materials that eventually became the, the book, uh, The Grand Communication. Yeah, I mean, for people who are not aware, you know, masonry is done for memory, the ritual and, um, and the catechism and things like that. So it's extremely impressive to have, to be able to have the bandwidth really to memorize all three of the craft degrees. That's, I commend you on that. Um, that's, that's uh, particularly interesting to me. Um, the fact that you kind of, there is this thing with masonry, right? Where it's like, well, the rituals aren't really written. They're not given to you. Like I'm in the golden dawn. You go through a degree or a, a grade, as we call them, these great initiations and advancements. They give you, you get a whole binder full of stuff. It's your curriculum and it's your ritual. And I can read the ritual seven, eight, nine times a day if I want to. Um, and you don't really get that privilege in, in masonry. You can pick up something like Duncan's Monitor and kind of flip through it, but all, it's not the same. The jurisdictions aren't the same. I, and, and to me, it feels like when you go through your catechism and you go through the ritual and you start sitting in ritual and you hear it over and over, it, it becomes kind of uh, second nature. And to, to see it, you know, to see the ritual, particularly the verbiage, there's a cadence there. It, it kind of, um, it flows in a certain way, depending on your jurisdiction to, to read it elsewhere where it's kind of different, it can be jarring. It's very unfamiliar to me. Um, but that, that is kind of one of the ways that we learn the ritual and learn the, the mythos of everything is, is just, you know, having to, to repeat these things, you know, from rote memorization over and over. Um, and uh, it's no small feat. So I commend you. I want the people who are listening to understand that aren't Masons. That's a big deal. So um, well, how'd you get into Freemasonry? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I uh, it's been just the last, you know, five or six years that I've been uh, an active Freemason and that I joined the fraternity. Um, I think when I was a little younger, uh, my only interactions with Masonic lodges uh, were really with lodges where the guys at the lodge were quite a bit older. And I didn't really know a lot of people who were in my peer group who were Freemasons uh, until a little bit later when I was in my 30s. Uh, I started to meet a few guys who were Freemasons and it kind of opened up my a perspective on how much of a living kind of practice uh, Freemasonry was and could be. Um, I think to my earlier experience, I thought of Freemasonry as something uh, historic, but not necessarily that was still active and living and um, that could be transformative. I think that was the other thing that I didn't really know anyone who it had done something actively transformative in their lives to improve them in a way that they could point to Freemasonry and say, in our generation, that's really done something for me. Um, but then when I started meeting some guys who had had that kind of experience, it made me realize maybe there's something within Freemasonry that is a living tradition, is a living, the symbols are really um they can work on the individual. They can make those kinds of transformations as you utilize the symbols, as you use them for transformation. 
Um, and I think that's part of the memorization of the ritual and working on the ritual in that way. You interiorize, it becomes something you internalize. So these symbols aren't just inert pictures or uh, images, but they become things that when something happens in your daily life, an image pops up in your mind or a phrase that you've been working on pops up in your mind and it reminds you of ways that you're trying to be better than you were or stick to your particular code of ethics uh, in difficult situations that Freemasonry has those tools and that those are still active living tools that um, could help transform you know, the individual was something that I, I guess in my youth, I wasn't really aware of. But as I met guys who had had that experience, it drew my interest to lodges. I started visiting a couple of lodges to get a sense for different cultures, different um, types of different lodges. And then found my home lodge and um, joined the fraternity and found that the symbols really did have some kind of, uh, they were alive and they, they had that kind of transformative uh, potential. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, for people that have listened to the podcast before, this might be a little redundant, but I think it's worth pointing out really the, the whole idea of, of a symbolic vocabulary is, is the occult. You know, it is esotericism. What we can speak, what we can speak about it is is are the symbols, and they come with their attendant commentary. But at the end of the day, that symbol is going to do its thing regardless. Um, and you know, there are many different ways of 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 thinking about that. You know, certain things are they, they might be considered to to be like imbued with a certain numinosity, or really just are uh, archetypal in nature. They kind of correspond to this hidden geometry of the subconscious or in, in in the subconscious and um what i like to say is like like you're saying you know to your point there's a certain level of saturation you know time spent with a symbol that will that will 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 change you in ways that um that aren't uh you they're little suspected you know the 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 way that that symbol is just it's just going to work on you um but in masonry for people who aren't masons you know yeah you you get your catechism a lot of the time and it's you know it's a they'll, they'll say it, it's kind of this back and forth of of memorization this this dialogue um and they'll they'll ask you okay what happened then and then you'll explain and there'll be some sort of instrument or implement that was that was your attention was directed towards and then when you're done explaining what happened you your your um your uh, your coach or your your um your catechism instructor will say, of what is this a symbol, you know? Uh, and, and you'll, you'll kind of, it, it has this, this built in way of showing you a symbol and then automatically telling you what it means or, or what, it, you know, at least, at least one layer of its meaning. So um, just for people to kind of wrap their heads around that, I know a lot of Masons listen to this podcast and this will, this will probably be very familiar to them. Um, so what ended up drawing your attention to, uh, to the, um, to Hermeticism and, and, uh, and Hermes Trismegistus in connection with Masonry? Yeah, so I had already been a little bit familiar with, uh, Hermetic literature and the like, even before I became a Freemason. When I joined the fraternity, uh, at my lodge, 
you know, there, when I went through the degrees, there were things in the degrees that popped out to me as symbols that seemed maybe a little suspect or in need of a little more attention. They seemed maybe out of place in the drama that was supposed to be unfolding in the dramatic ritual. And so those symbols, when they pop out, they leave you sort of as, I guess, kind of breadcrumbs to this mystery, right? There's, you're aware that there's something more going on here that needs a little bit of exploration, that, that um, needs some attention. Um, and as I asked questions at my lodge and uh, as people asked me what my perspectives were and as an instructor and someone who does presentations for a living, um, they asked me to do some presentations of my perspectives on these symbols and uh, different parts. And one of the things that is of interest to me as somebody who you know, works in religious studies, um, the symbol of King Solomon's temple is a critical symbol. The way we deal with it in, I think, religious studies and in seminaries differently um, you know, even within that academic field, it's divided. It's very divided. In my own experience going through grad school, there was a divide between the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literacy over, in no small part, over the how the, the Temple of Solomon should be dealt with in a way of archaeological history, of how do you verify it? What's the way that you authenticate these stories that are told biblically um, if there's no, you know, sort of outside corroborating archaeological evidence? Um, and one of the things that I pointed out as I went through the degrees that got me into a little bit of uh, debate with some of the brethren at the lodge, uh, we have this little stone by the door of our lodge uh, that people, it has a little card that says, this is a stone from uh, the Temple of Solomon. It's this little pebble that's meant to be from the Temple of Solomon itself. And I had made this kind of comment because of my experience in grad school, of this you know, ripping apart of the American Academy of Religion, which is religious studies and uh, relies on some kind of archeologic history to, to tell the history of religions and, and the Society of Biblical Literacy, which kind of had, already assumes that the, the Temple of Solomon and the things that are in the Tanakh in the Old Testament are true, whether there's any archeological evidence to kind of verify or not. Um, and so I made this kind of comment of, well, where's the archeological evidence to verify the Temple of Solomon? And I got some pushback from the brethren. We started to talk about it. And I usually like to point this out when you, you know, the Wikipedia page is a really, uh, <laughs> Uh, easy one. You look at it. They don't put it right at the top of the Wikipedia page. They put it about halfway down, but it says it very clearly. There's no archaeological evidence to verify the Temple of Solomon in history, right? And so it's a hot topic and it, it caused this kind of rift in um, sort of the professional field of religious studies. And so when I became a Freemason and the Temple of Solomon's right there, smack dab in the middle of the degrees, that became of real interest to me. Again, I sort of renewed this kind of interest in this debate and it's exactly what we just were talking about. If it's not something meant to be verifiable in history, let's say we set that to the side and say, 
Well, even if it's not something in history. As a symbol, then, what is it? What does it mean? What does it imply? Right? Uh, what's the allegory of it about? And who put it there? What was the, the nature of the history of the development of that particular degree? My book, part of the focus then is to say, well, when did Freemasonry become a three-degree system? And when did it add, as a part of that transformation, this focus on the Temple of Solomon and along with that, Hiram Abiff, the key character in this dramatic ritual in the drama, the, the drama that unfolds. And why? Why Hiram Abiff? That's not in, in the Bible. So as somebody who you know is in religious studies, I hear that and I'm like, well, why did they change? Why did they make this name? Why did they change this? What's this about? So exploring that, seeing the from Anderson's constitutions and the beginning of that three-degree system of the people that are grafting on some specific kinds of notions and ideas in creating this three-degree system from the two degrees that were part of the operative uh, Mason's guilds. And the question of like, well, why would they do that? What's the reason to add this third degree, focus on the Temple of Solomon, focus on this character and change his name a little bit from Huram Abi in the Bible to Hiram Abif. And as I explored that and looked at the literature, the reading list that I was given, um, you know, you see in uh, people like Albert Pike, you see it in Albert Mackey. There's this notion as they explored that early history that the name Hiram Abif is part of this grafting on subtly of information about uh, uh, Hermes Trismegistus and the hermetic sciences and the hermetic arts and the notions of alchemy um, as it's practiced in that late renaissance early modern period in the transition from um, you know sort of the, the pre-modern thinking into the enlightenment and and the development of science uh, with the royal society and the like um, and so that's kind of where my interests dovetailed and came together from religious studies and from Freemasonry and the, the focus on the Temple of Solomon and Hiram Biff into Hermes Trismegistus. Wonderful. And uh, for anyone listening, obviously I mentioned it in the intro, but uh, the grand communication, Freemasonry's Alchemical Quest for Divine Communion. That's the name of the book. And uh, it was released by Tria Prima Press earlier this year. Um so, I mean, I was going to ask you for a basic synopsis, but that, that I, that's basically, you just gave it to us, you know, like, but uh, there's, um, you know, you, you had mentioned something a little earlier about your book being a primer. And I just wanted to say that it, for a primer, it, I, I would say this, I would say that it is, it was, it, it's very accessible to people who are not, um, you know, academics or steeped in, in occult literature, because there's this very, you know, archaic sort of fanciful language that comes with a lot of uh, occult literature. It's just kind of um, this vestigial thing <laughs> from the 1800s, early 1900s, but your book is very clear. It's very concise. There's a good amount of humor in it um, and it's extremely accessible. And in that way, I find it to be um, a primer, but the, the, the the sort of breadth and scope of history that is covered is um is is very impressing. I would say that it's 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 still a very you're going to learn a lot from it if you're new to this stuff. Um, 
uh, even though, you know, as you say, it's, it's, it's a primer, it's because it, I guess of necessity, it has to encompass so much information and so much of the Western esoteric tradition, which as we know is, you know, at least, uh, 2,500 years old. So, um, uh, you know, I, I found the, the book also to be particularly, um, biblically erudite, obviously, you know, that's a display of, your years as a professor of religion, um, you know, where do you think the, the, one of the things that struck me, right? We talk a lot about the Mason word and the lost word and the substitution of yod heh vav Yahovah, you know, um, the Tetragrammaton. Where do you think, do you think that, that Christ as Logos, you know, take, let's say from the Jonin prologue, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word became flesh. That's something that, that a few brothers and myself have, have kind of tossed around in our heads. I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on that. Well, so I guess the uh, biblical stuff that I um, drew from in the uh, grand communication in my book is all from the Tanakh. It's all Old Testament. Right. Um, and that's uh, fairly intentional. Partly, I think what I am focusing on there, and it's, you know, in the title, the grand communication in contemporary religious studies, even as I talked about it earlier, it doesn't always fit so neatly in modern academia, in universities, in uh the same way as some other disciplines, in part because the focus is religion. It's focusing on something that's unseen. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about the idea of revelation, specifically today in contemporary times of revealing something, revealing from the unseen, uh, some communication that you should listen to, that you should change your attitudes or behaviors because you've communed with something unseen. Um, the question of like, is that still possible or is that something just from the past? That's maybe one starting kind of question. And then other questions that, you know, arise from that notion of is revelation still possible or is it just, if you start hearing a voice, that's onset of, you know, madness and schizophrenia and you should, you know, maybe go have a chat with somebody and, and that kind of thing. You know, so partly I think that's the humor in uh, the book is to when students come into my class that are especially traditional students in that 18 to 22 uh, range. And we talk about some of these deep problems and uh, potentially transformative kinds of experiences. Religious studies in the university isn't teaching how to do religion, how to uh, do different techniques or, or rituals or the like. It's teaching, you know different methodologies, history, and that kinds of stuff. So that's different in that sense. Um, and yet, when we look at some of those biblical stories, especially the ones I draw from, you know, Adam and Eve and uh, Moses and the bush and the writing on the wall, you know, some of these time periods where there's communication with something unseen that takes place. And the biblical narratives give us some kind of sketch of what is that like? What's it like to commune with something and be able to have some kind of authenticity? You can authenticate 
that it's not just the voices in your head. Um, it's not you descending into madness, but it's an actual verifiable, authentic communion with something more. Um, and then, you know, I guess the, the intertwining with Freemasonry, Freemasonry's um, even from the operative guild system had this kind of uh, encryption, decryption technique of uh, handshakes and words, the Mason's word and the like, to be able to encrypt and then decrypt through uh, the Mason cipher and other um, systems to be able to communicate with one another at a distance even. Um, and, you know, so then the notion of that as a kind of allegory for being able to verify, authenticate communion with something unseen becomes, I think, uh, a really elegant sort of notion of, in the ritual within Freemasonry. So then I think the way that Freemasonry kind of uh, has that in the biblical material that I try to draw from um, showing something about this communion of like, what is the way by which we have that kind of communion can authenticate it with some kind of method, even though, you know, in religious studies, that's one thing. What we're talking about here is something a little bit different, right? It's the actual communion and how you authenticate it for oneself. So when we talk about the name of God, and especially within Masonic ritual, the sort of notion of the secret name of God, and then when that's communicated as a way to authenticate, um, it being sort of maybe similar to the Mason's word in a more general sense of that communion one might have when they approach the altar of their own temple, right? Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh... There's a lot, lot I can kind of go off with there. Particularly, what strikes me is this idea of authenticating the um, those experiences, and uh, you know, it's that is, in my experience, that is the the process of uh, of theurgic magic, le the leading you to um, really these gnostic experiences this this gnosis um you know i'm not i'm not certain i'm not certain that that you need to verify to authenticate any of those things um so long as you know you can maintain some sort of like a some sort of balanced footing um but i think that the spiritual traditions of the west are leading towards those those experiences those uh, sort of non-rational transcendent um experiences and which kind of dovetails with with a question that i want to get to in a minute but but first i feel like i, I want to ask you what what you know we talk a lot about like we're talking a lot about how academia doesn't really um uh discuss how to do religion and, and things like that but uh, what would you think or what in in your estimation, what would you say the differences between exoteric religion from from an esoteric approach, like the one that we we you know hopefully tread as Freemasons and as um, people who study and and to some degree one degree or another practice Western esoteric traditions? Then what what do you what do you think differentiates them? Um, you mean exoteric in the sense of religious studies, or do you mean from like an exoteric reading of 
texts and the like. I would say, I would say both. You know what 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 immediately comes to mind for you? What are the the major differences between? I would say right. I think each of us has an esoteric life and an exoteric life, and for a lot of us, for me, academic studies and religion. You know the religion I was born with, uh, Catholicism. That's that's my es- exoteric life. What what then differentiates? What is the the esoteric path, right? Because that's what you know. If if we're going based on on the on your book and and the importation of these es- Western esoteric ideas, you know what what are the how how are we meant to embody that? How are we meant to walk that path? In in your opinion. Yeah, so I mean, I guess maybe that's a, a good uh, place to kind of compare those two. Is um, you know, part of the the part that I talk about in the book that maybe shows these two things is talking about the the holy anointing oil and the notion of uh, Messiah or Christos or Christ. Uh, and the way that that's um, dealt with, if you read the uh, biblical material in an exoteric exterior kind of way, the story is told um, in a particular way about a prophecy of someone who will be an anointed one. And then with the you know New Testament stories about um, the life and times of Jesus meant to be kind of proofs about the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um But one of the things I try to do in the book is to explore a little bit about the notion of the anointing oil, about what's the nature of this anointing oil. Um, And if you read it from maybe an esoteric perspective, the question of like, how does this spirit, Numahagion, the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Holy Breath, something, how does that happen experientially? What is that like? to bring on the spirit, the spirit that's unseen, that you will commune with, and that the communication is clearly the way it's described biblically. Um, If you were to go through it yourself, the experience of it would be radical and transformative and awesome, but also awful. It's, It's something that is going to put you outside of your stasis, right? So it's going to be ecstasis. It'll be outside of that state, that state of, of normalcy, and that'll be terrifying in a sense, right? So, so you know, describing this um, from an exoteric perspective is one thing, but the esoteric, and then thinking about how that experience would be of the transformation that that would go through for yourself is a little bit of a different perspective. And then thinking about, well, what is this holy oil? If you're thinking about this from an esoteric perspective, what is the nature of this holy oil that brings on or is connected to this spirit, this experience of the spirit that's wholly other, wholly other than us, right? And so I, I explore that kind of concept a little bit in the book to talk about, well, if you had an experience of, of touching, of coming into contact, of communing with something wholly other, um, the numinosity of that and the awe the feeling of that, right? And so, you know, like thinking about that a little bit and then thinking, well, what's the connection to this oil, this anointing oil, this ointment or oil, right? Um, and then looking at the biblical material and talking a little bit about, well, what's the recipe? How is it made? What's it made of? 
Um, and when you see that, there are specific um, botanical elements that are part of this recipe and that are part of, uh, described as being put together a, a certain kind of way. There's a certain method, you know, and then for me, that, that question of the exoteric reading, then the way that you, you know, I talk about it in my courses, for example, we're talking about more of the exoteric, the history of it, its impact on peoples as they've read it from more of that exoteric perspective, usually. Um, but then from an esoteric reading, so something that's more of an experience, um, you know, then that's something quite different. That's more asking the questions of transformation and um, whether experiences that a person has subjectively meet those kind of criteria. Um, and I guess I would point that out. I mean, I know you're familiar uh, with some of the alchemical um, literature and, and the like. And from that discussion of the anointing oil, the way it's described biblically, that's my uh, intertwining part that goes with the alchemical literature, the Rosicrucian literature, uh, and the hermetic arts and sciences that have to do with alchemy, specifically alchemy of uh, that kind of perspective of chemical um, compositions and then th their consumption and transformation of the, the person of, um, you know, whether that's oils or uh, distillates and, and the like. So um, that's where my book also is intertwined with not just um, some of that biblical material, but the alchemical uh, symbols and uh, lineage and the thing that I think the book does maybe a little bit uniquely in history of uh, Freemasonry and history of science talks about the development of brewing um, and distilling alcohol and the rise of Freemasonic lodges, uh, speculative lodges in their first century in brew houses and ale houses and pubs exclusively. And the fact that there's a master brewer, a brewmeister, who will be associated with each of those lodges who has some knowledge, some basic chemistry, some alchemical kinds of knowledge um, at each of these speculative, speculative lodges around the world. Right? So uh, just to, just to, to dive a little deeper <laughs> into the deep end with all that said, right. Um, I'm, I'm interested in uh, what, what you think that the, the, um, the true spiritual, if there is one, right? But we obviously see that there's so there's importation of certain ideas, and and sort of this overlay of um, you know through Rosicrucianism, which has all the alchemical stuff, right? I would venture to say that that much of the Rosi the 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 uh, literature attributed to Rosicrucians. Um, during the the Rosicrucian movement, especially the earlier first maybe two hundred years, it's, it's almost exclusively alchemical uh, in nature. It's got all these diagrams. It follows these alchemical formula, and that's based on Hermeticism. So it kind of it kind of brings its way into uh, masonry, and um, you know whether that's grafted on or whether it's organically a part of the DNA as it goes through this process. But you know, in the big picture. What, what do you think that the spiritual impetus behind Freemasonry is? Now, I know it's right there in your book's title, right? It says divine communion. But, you know, I, 
based on all the evidence you've compiled, and I'm sure, right, all the research that you did, uh, quite a bit of it had to be left out of necessity. Um, you know, the trajectory of Masonic initiation, what is what is that really claiming um, or intending to affect? You know, could divine communion, is it henosis? Is it just personal transformation like we were talking about in the beginning um you know what's the i guess raison d'etre for for masonry um as as you conceive it uh from at, at not only an historical level not only a practitioner uh, level but somebody who is familiar intimately familiar with and and studies analyzes religion yeah so there's a a lot there i guess the yeah. uh, <laughs> so I guess the first part, you know, I really like the notion of uh, the word authenticity and authenticate, that sense of alchemical gold, right? What's the difference between something that's authentic and just, you know, sort of the, the madness of the mind or whatever. Um, when you look at that early alchemical um, period, the, the period with the Rosicrucians, I guess, especially, um, I traced a little bit of the lineage there of early Freemasonry um, and talk about the life of John Dee, the life of Elias Ashmole, and then the beginning of speculative Freemasonry. Those all happen within basically, those are three generations in a row. Um, and when you look at, say, uh, you, know, you know, like uh, the, I love the, the notion of with Kunrath's um, laboratory, the famous uh, um, image that I'd been teaching about uh, the Oret Labora for years without really flipping the words around so that it's labor and oratory. Um, but the Oret Labora had been, you know, it's a, a longstanding um, um, writing in Christianity, but flipping those around and, and thinking of that, of that as like the labor or work and then the oratory. There's some kind of music or um, words that we can say that will inspire a certain kind of feeling or environment, a setting, right? And then the actual chemicals bringing on a state of mind, a mindset. So you have then, you know, hopefully the dosage, right? The setting and the mindset, the set setting and dosage sort of Tim Leary's kind of uh, um, formula, right? But you have this in this time period of the Rosicrucians, pre-science, pre-sort of the scientific method. Um, and yet when you think of like, well, what, first of all, I guess with the Freemasonic practices of today, if you're actually trying to do some of the alchemical practices, what's, I guess, in part the labor, what is the work that you have to do for your mindset that such that you have a scaffolding in place that helps you to know how you go from the profane to the sacred and divide off those things, how you guard between um, the division between those things, how you properly approach the altar of the temple, of, of your own temple, the internal. Um, what's the method that you're taught in Freemasonry? There's very specific steps that are taught as kind of a general scaffolding. Now, no matter whatever your other religious or philosophical perspectives might be, that's sort of a, a really general scaffolding that's given even to this day as a part of Blue Lodge speculative Freemasonry. So that's something that's very um, 
actual. It's something you can utilize. Once you have that scaffolding in place, once you've internalized that, then other things that might happen, other transformations fit within at least that scaffolding. You have that as a kind of map. But then looking back to that early period of what, you know, sort of the impetus was, why did they think that grafting on these hermetic symbols and the notion of the hermetic sciences into speculative masonry, why did it take, why did so many people think it was authentic, that there was something real to the communion that some were experiencing based on these methods and, and the like? When you look at the life of John Dee, and I guess in part what's interesting to me is these are people on the cusp of the modern world, and they're writing in English. And so this isn't something archaic and necessarily in the distant past. Um, as an English speaker, you can approach them. You can read the text directly and see what these guys were writing about, what they say. And these are not, you know, people who are writing just off the cuff. These are brilliant thinkers. I mean... D at the time is one of the most brilliant people in the world. He writes the uh, English translation of Euclid's elements, the preface to it. That's what makes him famous. So when we think of geometry and its connection to uh, Freemasonry, Euclid's elements and then the introduction by John D should be something that we look to almost immediately as Freemasons. D has an experience and he has an experience later in life, a series of these experiences in which he confident he's having communion with angelic entities something unseen now this is no you know mere fool this is a guy who is very intimate with mathematics and with writing encryption and decryption so much so that you know his method and his interaction with uh edward kelly the guy that uh, he's working with as his scryer you know there's a really difficult question, even for us as in modern history, is it really possible that Edward Kelly could have tricked John Dee with his visions or something like that? That's a really difficult uh, kind of concept. Maybe he was that level of charlatan, but it's really difficult to imagine because of the sophistication of this kind of encryption that's involved with uh, Dee's angelic, Enochian uh, angelic system. And then, and when you see what he writes about the chemicals specifically, the that he writes in Latin after he's had these kinds of experiences in his uh, diary twice, th that he's had a transformation, and it's it's nothing small. It's the big it's the big thing. It's the big deal. And then in the very next generation, you know, it, after the English uh, after the Thirty Years' War and English civil wars have ravaged through Europe and, uh, uh, and England, you have Elias Ashmole, who is directly connected with uh, John Dee's son, Arthur Dee, and um, who is initiated um, by William Backhouse, who is friends, family friends with the Dees, um, who it seems pretty understandable that he would have been able to get a hold of the same chemical, whatever it might've been. Um, and Ashmole writes that when he has that initiatory experience, whatever it is, it's transformative. It changes him in the big way, the deep way. He sees it as akin to a ordination, a true ordination into a true priesthood, not one riven by confessionalism like that's been going on in 
uh, Europe and, and, and in England uh, through this time period, but something bigger and deeper. So when we look, you know, from that cusp of the modern world and, and then from there, Ashmole and others in the beginning of the Royal Society are actively asking, what is this chemical? What are chemicals out there that we might be able to um, utilize to have these communions with unseen entities or these kind of metaphysical kind of uh, communions that we should take seriously, that we can authenticate. What's the method by which we can authenticate those, right? The history of science from there, I think maybe takes a bit of a turn to say these kind of subjective experiences should be outside the bounds of the method of science. And maybe that is in uh, error. Maybe that's a, an area of the history of science we should reattend to in our contemporary times. But we should at least give it some serious consideration. These are very smart guys who have very strong feeling that whatever they've experience, whatever they've um, utilized has been a real transformation, something very deep. That is something that even for us today, if we're asking the question of alchemical transformations, utilization of you know something along those lines um, that we should take seriously. And then the question of what are the labors? What's the work by which we can put our own mindset uh, into such a frame that we're able to handle those kinds of transformations, um, approach them with seriousness, but also, you know, be somewhat critical and authenticate them. Yeah, you hit on a lot of what I was hoping that you'd, you'd kind of get at there. Um, yeah, on the, on the point of, of science potentially authenticating these, I guess, uh, spiritual or um, religious or, uh, you know, uh, Gnostic experiences, you know, I, I I tend to think that you know science has got to to change in, in a dramatic in a, in a drastic way, like a dramatic overhaul uh, of something in order to, and it 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 necessarily can't at this point. I, I liken it to trying to put toddler clothes on a grown person. Um, it's it's not, um, it's these things. I think are the experiences themselves. Not what generates them, and not kind of the the sci quote unquote science of spirit. You know these, um, as you're saying, these scaffolding and 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 uh, I guess symbols and and systems that that lead us there. But the actual events themselves, I, I, I'm you know, and that's that's kind of kind of my idea earlier about not, not it not mattering if you can authenticate you know the actual experience, um, and I think that. I, you know, there's this strict admonition to secrecy um, in a lot of esoteric orders. There's one in Masonry. There's there's obviously one in the Golden Dawn. Uh, for as much as I have said <laughs> publicly, I have there's there's probably twice as more I haven't. Um, and mm -hmm. and part of that I think is because you have to learn how it. You have to learn to be able to not be able to say something. Um, and I think that that transcends secrecy itself. I think secrecy is a training for that, right? You, I, lo I love the way you put it, Elias Eshmole, having this, it's the big thing. John D., you know, it's the big thing. It, and they're trying to talk about, they're talking around it. It's It was akin to an ordination. It transformed my life. Um, but the experience itself and what that was like, you know, it can't be explained. 
You know, it's it's transverbal. It it can it. There's no way that you could um that you can really communicate it in any way that 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 makes sense, particularly scientifically. At least I, at least I don't think having gone through some of these some experiences that um I think are tantamount to, or at least they're they're the eventualities of a spiritual discipline. Um, it's just, it doesn't seem, it seems like, uh, it's like trying to talk about a color that you've never seen before. <laughs> you know, like think about that for a second. It's like the mind can't do it. Yeah. I mean, that's the, <clears throat> the nature, nature of something being ineffable, right? It's indescribable. It's not that words or something like, uh, a rational explanation is going to provide you with a real um, feeling for it. And I, I guess that's the thing. I, I talk about that a little in the book, and we have that in religious studies, uh, Rudolf Otto's idea of the numinous. Um, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy describes this as uh, a, a way of knowing, an emotive way of knowing. You know it by feel. It's in your heart which is a phrase that's usually pretty familiar that there's some way that how will you know it? This is not knowledge that you're going to gain by a book knowledge. This kind of experiential knowledge, the way that you're going to know it is emotive. It's something that you'll feel it and you'll, you'll know it that way. That's different than we teach in, you know, a classroom or the like, that's very different. And so, you know, I think that's uh, one of the, the key parts there is, some of the descriptions that these guys are trying to give, and it's a problem in mysticism and the literature uh, the world over, is you can give something that's analogous. You can describe something by analogy and say, well, it's like this, so that you can maybe have a sense for what it's like. But really, you'll know when you feel it. It's more, you know, something that as you approach or as you have the experience, then this kind of knowledge, a different variety will take place. And right? that's yeah. something I think quite, quite different. I think that, that, that for me has been the, the, um, the keystone of, of good teachers in esotericism is that they're very good with analogy. That's really the closest. It's really the closest thing that you can, that you can get to, to talking about any of this stuff. Something that I wanted to, to also get your, your thoughts on, it's it's definitely at the forefront of my my mind at the moment, and, and I think a lot of other people. Um, there's this kind of new movement, um, or maybe it's it's kind of this uh, movement that is reappearing. I don't really know uh, within Masonry and with I think with just in general intellectual circles you see kind of seeing it spill over in academia I, I mean you're a great example of it um but a lot of younger brethren are hungry for these types of interpretation and these types of conversations um you know and i see that you are kind of you're you're poised in multiple areas right so you're you're amazing you've been there since 2017 obviously very active in the fraternity right you're doing the work you're also writing about the work and you're you're a, a professor so you're also experiencing sort of this intellectual, these mainstream movements uh, from that perspective. And, you know, so you're dealing with, with, with masonry, maybe a, a, some, some young up and comers uh, as, as the, the craft has been reinvigorated with, with, with some of that over the last few years and then in the classroom, right? So what are your thoughts on esotericism uh, 
and traditionalism as 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 movements, particularly uh, within Masonry and occultism. What are your thoughts on some of those things? Yeah, I, I guess in my experience, first of all, I guess with Freemasonry, um, there's a bit of a generational gap in my lodge and several other lodges that I've traveled to. Um, but the and there's interest, I think, of esotericism among guys of all generations and has been partly my experience um, and traditionalism, I guess, to some degree as well. Um, but uh, I think that there is a, an interest in the, the subjects. There's a lot of a kind of hunger uh, among a certain uh, element within Freemasonry, but also within my classrooms, you know, I teach, really large classes. Uh, some of the introductory classes have like 200 people or whatever in them. And then, you know, I also have the smaller classes. Once you go up to some of the uh, junior level classes and like those can get down to 15, 20 people. Um, and I teach topics like um, religion and pop culture. Uh, that's a maybe a really good example of one of the courses where, you know, I guess in our somewhat critique of science, one of the ways of our institutions in our culture and, and uh, the worldview is one in which um, there is a universe that is disenchanted. There's no enchantment. The, there's the, the mystery of the universe is sort of um, left to um, objective, observational, hard science kind of methods. Um, but when I see some of the questions from my students, some of the interests that they have in pop culture, uh, when I think of, you know, their interest over two generations now in things like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and that's where they get familiarity with like the Philosopher's Stone and alchemy a little bit. That's where they kind of know. Um, and, you know, not just that franchise, but when you look at a lot of other really popular franchises and uh, fantasy, but also in science fiction, there's this rise of a desire for enchantment, of an enchantment still being illustrated within our popular culture, even though the institutions of our society are hyper-rational and don't have this kind of enchanted view. Um, and so I think in part the interest in some of the esoteric in Freemasonry and some of the interest in the Philosopher's Stone and some of the history of science that was in that time period that still had that enchantment, the understanding of the universe having mysteries that the individual could approach is desired. It, there's a desire for that still. And you see it playing out in the really popular parts of culture. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's in part maybe why there's this renewal or this reinvigoration, um, the sort of hyper-rational view of society isn't meeting some of the deep needs. There's a craving then for a different view, a view that re-enchants, brings back that sort of view of some of the enchantment and the mysteries um, that are still alive and that can still be um, approached and there can be communion with, right? And so I, I think that that's in part maybe why that popularity, that renewal is starting to take place. That's excellent. Um, so obviously you, you 
Uh, you probably have seen a couple of the podcasts. I have a canned question that I ask everyone. And I'm sure that you're not going to have too much of a problem with it because you're not only an author and uh, somebody who's interested in occultism uh, and esotericism, but you're a college professor. So uh, three books for people that uh, have listened to this podcast and might want to explore um you know, uh, some other pathways into this information. You can obviously list your own. <laughs> well, the Grand Communication, great book. I mean, everybody's yeah. going to definitely want to check that one out. Now, um, um, The Genesis of Freemasonry, David Harrison's uh, book, is one of my favorites for uh, a uh, kind of a really scholarly, well-cited uh, history of that time period of the early speculative craft. Um, so that's one I would definitely recommend. Um, Esoterica, Albert Pike, uh, the, the symbolism of the Blue Lodge degrees. If you're interested in discovering those, um, especially for Freemasons who've gone through the degrees, um, but it's available. I mean, it's public. People can get a copy of it. So if you're not a Freemason and never intend to become a Freemason, you can find an out an awful lot about the secrets that Freemasons do. Um, but it, it, it talks about the symbols and specifically some of their attachments uh, um, to Hermeticism. Um, and then um, I guess maybe the third book, uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll pitch uh, the book that came out uh, from Tria Prima before me, Angels in Vermilion uh, by P.D. Newman. Um, you know, I thought his uh, uh, first book, Alchemically Stone, was great, uh, easy read, very approachable. Uh, Angels in Vermilion does a nice job of tracing one of the lineages I, I talk about a little bit in the Grand Communication. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his work is likewise very easy to read, very approachable, uh, gives a good foundation for then going off and doing some other um, uh, avenues of exploration. So I guess that's maybe uh, three good books to check out that I think your audience would probably really enjoy if they haven't already uh, read. Great. Uh, so you've got, have you got anything else um, that you're working on or are you traveling anywhere to speak? What What's going on for you in 2024? Yeah, I've got... Um, some uh, a, another manuscript that I've been uh, working on and some travel and research uh, that's a part of that um, deals a little bit in more depth with some of the notions of um, encrypting, decrypting, and some of the symbols and those kinds of things. So I'll be doing a little bit of traveling around Europe and uh, doing some uh, research for that. Uh, I am speaking at a Masonic Leadership Conference here in Arizona. I'll be speaking with a research lodge uh, for uh, the state of Washington. And uh, yeah, and then I'll have some other things uh, I'll be booking as the year goes along. But uh, yeah, so it'll be a busy 2024. Awesome. I am looking forward to, uh, to all of your future work. And um, I'm glad you came on tonight. Thanks so much uh, for talking with me. Um, do you have a website? Is there is there a place anybody can go if they want to know more about you? I mean, I'll, I'm going to link it in the in the video anyway. But if you want to spot that, yeah, I don't really have a website, but uh, I have like a biography on Tria, Tria Prima's uh, website uh, that people can check out that and check out the the book. It's on triaprimapress.com. It's also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, that's, that's ways to check me out. Uh, I've really appreciated you having me on the show and having a little conversation. And I'm also really looking forward to uh, your book coming out with Tria Prima 
uh, in a few months. So uh, definitely be looking forward to it.